You're listening to highlights from One Planet podcast interview with David R. Montgomery, geologist at the University of Washington. This podcast is supported by the Yan Michalski Foundation. When I really started to turn into an optimist on this issue, that we could actually reframe the problem of soil erosion into one of soil restoration, came when my wife, Anne Baclay, and I bought a house in Seattle after I got tenure at the University of Washington. And she's a biologist and a major league gardener. I think she's a plant whisperer. She can bring plants back from the edge of death, coax them robust blooms. And when you think about what makes healthy, fertile soil, that marriage of geology and biology is essentially it. The, the mineral matter, the stuff that I'd studied, and then the role of soil life, the kind of biology that was a little finer scale than Anne is, was normally accustomed to working on. She was trained in natural history and the biology of the animals and organisms we can see with our senses. As she started her gardening efforts in our yard, we noticed over the course of a few years that the crappy soil that we started with when we cleaned a lawn off to start making a garden was actually getting much better. It was getting darker. Carbon was getting back into it. We noticed life forms emerging in the sequence that mirrored the evolution of life on earth over geologic time. And the secret was essentially restoring organic matter to the soil, composting and mulching and the gardening activities that Anne was doing. If we could do this in a small yard in urban Seattle, could you do it on farms around the world? And that led to writing Growing a Revolution, which I took some time from my day job and traveled around the world to visit farmers who had done to their farms what Anne did to our yard. They'd restored their land. They'd restored the health of their soil. And how did they do it? Well, it turned out that they followed a set of principles that were pretty parallel to the principles Anne followed in restoring the soil in our yard. If farmers adopt practices that aren't natural, but that follow the same principles. They can actually bring their land back to life. It looks like modern farming practices have reduced the amount of three key things in the human diet. Mineral micronutrients, which are important. These things like copper and zinc that are important for our immune system. And also phytochemicals, plant-made compounds that we might know as more like antioxidants or inflammatories, things that have medicinal effects in our bodies. And then also the way that we raise livestock influences the mix of fats in our meat and dairy products, particularly the amount of omega-3 fats that help to quell or reduce inflammation and the amount of omega-6 fats that help to initiate or start inflammation. And by feeding our livestock on a grain-based diet, grains are rich in omega-6 fats. Our meat and dairy products have become very much enriched in these pro-inflammatory fats, whereas pasture-raised or animals that graze on living plants, the photosynthetic parts in particular, are rich in omega-3 fats. The way that we farm matters to not just the health of our own societies over centuries to millennia, but to our individual health in terms of what's actually in what we eat. We're losing about 0.3% of our global food production capacity each and every year to ongoing soil loss and degradation. On an individual year, that's hard to notice, 0.3%. But if you run it out over 100 years, that becomes 30%. I've become an optimist that we could turn it around through researching and writing this series of books. But for us to do that, we have to change how we farm. When you dig into the medical literature, seven out of 10 of the leading causes of death in the United States are diet-related chronic diseases. And so one of the hopeful messages is that what we do to the land, essentially we do to us. And what's good for the land is good for us. Seeds are very rich in omega-6s, whereas vegetables, leafy greens, animals that have grazed off of living pastures, they're all rich in omega-3s. So if we're eating a lot of processed foods that are grain-derived, then we're getting a lot of omega-6s. And if our livestock, from which we're getting our meat and dairy, are raised in a 
the diet of grains, we're getting a lot of omega-6s. It's an underappreciated key piece of the puzzle, I think, in terms of why inflammation-rooted diseases, chronic diseases, have gone through the roof in the last 50 years. The idea that what we eat is important to our health is really not a mystery. We all know that. But the degree to which how we raise what we eat influences those key things that helped bolster our immune system is much less recognized. And I think it deserves a lot more attention, which is partly why we wrote the book. The largest regenerative farms I've been on are like 20,000 plus acres. They're huge, very mechanized farms. They're industrial farms, not small scale farms, but they've basically reshaped their operations to go to no-till farming with a minimal use of fertilizers and any agrochemicals. Some of the people at scale with many thousands of acres have even gone to using no agrochemicals because once they've actually restored their soil, these regenerative farmers, once they've gone through the transition, that they can achieve yields that are comparable to their conventional neighbors, but they do so at a lower cost. The equipment and technology they have access to. So the kind of practices that I've seen farmers in equatorial Africa use, say on small scale subsistence farms, follow the same principles as the farmers I've seen on large 20,000 acre farms in the Dakotas raising commodity crops. One of the interesting things in researching King of Fish I came across was I looked into what were Native American land management practices in the Northwest and fisheries management practices. And they had a fairly finely attuned way of looking at how to not destroy a fishery. And when you look at, particularly on the Columbia River Gorge, there's an archaeologically documented almost 10,000 year history of an intensive Native American salmon fishery. Something that was sustained for 10,000 years probably passes the sustainable question. That that was a sustainable fishery and we managed to virtually destroy it in just a hundred years. What was the difference? They actually recognized pieces of the salmon life cycle that were important to maintaining them. It had restrictions on how many fish you could take at what time and in what style. And they weren't engaged in the kind of massive habitat changes that we see in the region today. But the lesson that I took away from all that is in thinking about our connection to the natural world, we need to really root how we live on the land, whether it's in our own yard, the way Ann and I were looking at our garden, or whether we look at global farmland. We need to understand how nature works and to work with nature rather than to try and work against it. When we turn back to agriculture and the health of the soil and the health of the land, if we look at how nature builds fertile soil, we don't have to do it exactly the same way, but we should follow the same principles in terms of how it works. And that would be the principles that today underpin regenerative farming. Many of the regenerative farmers that have visited around the world adopt those three practices of no-till cover crops and growing a diversity of crops. But some of them also have started to reintegrate animals into their cropping practices, or they engage in regenerative grazing practices, which typically involve moving cattle around fairly frequently, which is the way that big herds like the buffalo used to move around the plains. And it turns out that in the last 80 years, we've learned an awful lot about the life in the soil that connects the dots about why that actually was a practice that worked pretty well to support large herds of buffalo and to build these incredibly rich, fertile soils of the American Midwest, which we have now degraded by roughly 50% in terms of the last 150 years of farming. But animals help build them up. It's not the cows. It's how people manage them. Cattle can do things useful to us nutritionally. They can turn cellulose, grass that we can't eat, into meat and milk that we can. If we look at how we raise not just our crops, but our livestock and the style of how we do it, there's regions of the world where it can make a lot of sense as a key component of the human diet if we raise them right. Whereas if we don't, if we raise them the way we do now in conventional feedlots and feed them grains, we're taking something that could be an environmental asset and turning it into something that produces less nutritious food and produces a bunch of nauseous waste that could be used as fertilizer.
soil is that typically about a quarter of it is air. It's porous. It's kind of like Swiss cheese. And those air conduits are actually really important for the movement of organisms and the movement of water and the movement of air through the soil. And so tilling basically powders it all up and pulverizes it. You think about what happens to the rain that then falls on a soil that's freshly plowed. It'll crust over the surface because it's basically powdered. And then once it's crusted over, the water runs off. It doesn't sink down in the ground. What you want the water to do is to get to the roots of your crops. And so tilling is actually counterproductive for getting water into the land, even though you would think that, oh, if you break the soil up, you're going to get more water into the ground. The problem is it doesn't actually work that way. So the way that we're inclined to intuit the world working, it doesn't turn out to be the way that it actually does. And that's the kind of example of how we get into trouble in terms of thinking that we know how to manage nature in ways that we may only have partial information on. It can basically cause other problems. What tilling also does is that when you mix up the soil, you're basically basically exposing more surface area of the particles in it. And that can lead to greater bacterial decomposition of organic matter. And organic matter is basically dead stuff. It's basically things that were once alive that are now decaying or rotting in the soil. And that organic matter tends to be a source of good nutrients, not nitrogen to some degree, phosphorus to some degree, but particularly for mineral micronutrients, because those organic matter by virtue of it having once been alive, it has what it takes to support new life. And so the recycling of that material happens in the soil. And when we till, you get a burst of activity that accelerates that. And that's where that problem of decaying, decreasing soil fertility in the temperate regions versus the tropics as tilling comes in is that it breaks down organic matter faster. And tillage also disrupts the fungal networks in the soil. And turns out that those fungal networks are a key component of how mineral micronutrients get into plants, including many crops, because they serve as root extensions for the plant. And plants actively feed their fungal partners with what are called exudates or sugar-rich compounds they exude from their roots to feed their fungal partners. Why? Because fungi can't photosynthesize. So they need a food source. They'll either consume decaying organic matter, or if they get a free handout, from a plant, they will actually go out and mine things like zinc or phosphorus and trade it to the plant for a cut of those sugary exudates. It's a partnership. Symbiosis has been one of the main driving forces in evolution and in life, but we've overlooked it because of the relationship between host organisms like ourselves or our crops and their microbiome, the microbes that inhabit them or their bodies or their environments are out of sight, out of mind because we don't have the senses to be able to detect them. We didn't even know microbes existed until just a couple centuries ago, but it turns out they structure our world and they help support our health. We tend to focus on the bad actors, the pests and pathogens, and we've overlooked the benefits that our collaborators, our partners actually provide to us. This concept of body wisdom that you mentioned is a really interesting one that came out of veterinary science, animal science, in looking at how does a grazing animal know what to eat? How do they stay healthy? And the research into that area has illuminated this concept of body wisdom, which if you couple it with the observation that our bodies have taste receptors throughout our bodies for various compounds like bitter taste receptors and fat receptors. And it's like, why would our kidneys and our liver need essentially taste receptors? And if you start thinking about flavor as information that is being conveyed to your 
body about what's in the food you're eating, the lights start to go on. We've all had those like horrible, dry, nasty tomatoes that you can find in supermarkets at times. And hopefully we've all had a really nice heirloom tomato that's juicy and eating. Go, wow, that's a tomato. It turns out that those flavors are sending signals to your body about what's in the food. That's been greatly disrupted in the modern world with food processing, because what do you do with food processing? You're basically taking different whole foods, dividing them into their constituent elements, and then recombining them in some way that someone thinks will sell to someone or that will last longer or ship better or whatever other purpose one has for processing that food. What that does is it breaks the link between the flavor and what's actually in the food, because what's generally added to processed foods are or things to make them taste better. And they can be particular ingredients that have a flavor, but don't necessarily deliver the nutritional component that your body is interpreting would come along with that flavor. But the last few decades have seen an explosion of information in terms of how our actions affect the natural world. And ranging from the climate to the soil to water, there's an awful lot of things that we've been doing that are degrading the life support systems of a planet that our descendants are going to depend on. We need quite radically to readdress many of those basic issues about how we live in the land, how we raise our food, and reframe the way we think about them in terms of how to pass on the world in better shape than we got it. We're at a point where we now have the knowledge to be able to try and think about doing that. We have solutions in our grasp. Don't give in to despair. There's a lot of work that needs to be done, and I may not live long enough to see it achieved, but what really matters is the state of what we leave for those who will follow us and try and make the world a better place. We hope you've enjoyed this program and listening to the highlights of this podcast. If you would like to get involved in One Planet Podcast or learn more about environmental projects, click on the subscribe button. Thanks for listening.